Welcome to Makers and Shakers of Chinese History. I'm Mark. For most emperors across thousands of years of world history, either the great Julius Caesar or the controversial Genghis Khan, one of the biggest questions was to choose their one and only successor. Emperor Du Guang of the Qing dynasty also fell into such a dilemma. When he came to power in 1820, he inherited an already declining empire, with Western imperialism encroaching upon the autonomy of China. His 30-year reign was marked by external disaster and internal rebellion, that is, by the First Opium War and the beginning of the Taiping Rebellion, which nearly brought down the dynasty. When it came to the end of Emperor Du Guang's reign, the nation needed a young emperor who was politically more powerful and physically stronger with a global vision. The one chosen was none of the above. It's believed that Emperor Xian Feng was chosen as the heir apparently because he was merciful. But his half-younger brother, Yi Xin, later known as Prince Gong, had every quality to be an emperor and saviour of the dynasty. I realise that's a huge claim, but here's a few reasons why it's thought so. First, Prince Gong was a child prodigy. At a very early age, he was already noted for his brilliance and thought to be the emperor's favourite son. As a child, he was able to memorise more than a thousand words in one day. Wait, let me say that again. A thousand words? A day? Young Prince Gong had the opportunity to study with the best scholar at that time. He even mastered three languages, Manchu, Mongolian and Han Chinese. He was also skilled in using weapons, such as swords and spears. If the successor of the emperor was to be his most capable son, Prince Gong should have been chosen. So what happened? Why did it end up the other way round? We could find the answer in how the emperor weighed and balanced between his two sons. The most prevailing factor is said to be that the emperor, unlike his predecessors, was a Confucian. He believed that his throne should better be passed down to his eldest surviving son. But nobody knew the old emperor's standards for choosing his successor, because Qing dynasty emperors designated their heirs in secret, with one copy of the will hidden in the Palace of Heavenly Purity, and another carried at all times by the emperor himself. Before the emperor secretly named his successor, almost everyone believed Prince Gong would be the one, for obvious reasons. Yet to everyone's bewilderment, and possibly to our princes as well, the older brother was selected to reign. Hats off to Confucius, for that. The old emperor made sure in his will that he became a first-rank prince, helping his brother in ruling the country. So without further ado, his brother, now titled Emperor Xian Feng, was now in charge, but was plagued by domestic upheavals and foreign aggression. Could his brother, Prince Gong, have been more helpful? Most definitely. But instead of honouring his father's wish of having his brother help with rulership, he gradually barred Prince Gong from politics due to his envy. The emperor didn't give his brother the chance to shoulder any important responsibilities until the Second Opium War, ten years after he ascended the throne. Prince Gong had lost ten years of valuable time to do anything sufficient to turn the situation around.
The second reason why Gong should have been emperor lies in his ability to manage a crisis. When the going got tough for the new emperor, he'd often throw in the towel. For example, in the face of foreign invasion, the emperor chose to flee. Yet the capital city of Beijing should never be left with a power vacuum. Instead, the emperor entrusted the most difficult responsibilities to his brother, Prince Gong, who had to handle international affairs for the first time. Prince Gong negotiated with the British, French and Russians and signed the Convention of Beijing on behalf of the Qing Empire, which was considered an unequal war treaty for the Qing Empire. Prince Gong felt ashamed of signing it and requested to be punished for the act. But the Emperor kept Prince Gong close as he knew he'd most likely be of use to him for future decisions. So that's led us to the next reason why we say Prince Gong should have been the Emperor. He was open-minded, ready to learn and reform. Unlike most in that era, he was able to connect with Westerners. The conservative ministers of the Empire gave him a nickname called the Devil Number no. 6. Devil here meant that he was a representative for the foreign invaders, while Six came from the fact that Prince Gong was the sixth son of the late Emperor. It's widely believed that the biggest difference between Prince Gong and other Manchu emperors and ministers lies in their cognition of China foreign relations and even the whole world. Unlike his ancestors, Prince Gong had no choice on whether he wanted to meet foreigners or not, as they forced their entry with guns blazing. The welcoming party was none other than the Allied forces from Britain and France, who came to Beijing in 1860 with powerful ships and guns, as well as some new weapons the Chinese had never faced. At first, Prince Gong was still tough in his attitude. Before formal negotiations took place, he requested the British and French coalition troops to withdraw in exchange for the release of captured prisoner soldiers. However, the gate of the Qing Empire was finally opened. The British and French coalition forces entered Beijing without a shock. Prince Gong completely lost his bargaining chips and could only bow and negotiate. It was in this critical negotiation that Prince Gong developed his understanding of not only the West, but the big global picture, so to speak. He finally understood that the Qing Emperor was too weak to wage war against the Western powers. He was also aware of the fact that Westerners came to China only for trade, not for the destruction of the Qing dynasty. They wanted to change the traditional concept of some Chinese authorities that China was the centre of the world, while the rest of the world was barbaric. Most importantly, they wanted to cultivate a Chinese politician who fully understood and trusted Westerners. Obviously, Prince Gong was the most suitable to play this role within the entire Manchu royal family. It was due to his unique understanding of the Western world that he later became the leader and protector of the Westernization movement within the Empire after the Second Opium War, which started the industrialization of China. In the whole Westernization movement, Prince Gong promoted three major events, each of which changed the political and social landscape of China. The first was the creation of the country's Foreign Affairs Ministry office. Prince Gong personally served as the minister for 28 years, 
gearing China up for modernization and normalization of diplomacy on a global scale. It served as China's official communication channel with the West, ending the chaotic time when Western diplomats didn't know who to talk to with China on certain issues. The second important contribution from Yi Xin was that he transferred power to the lower-level governors of different provinces. Therefore, these governors could have opportunities and later on became the trailblazers of the westernization movement of China in different areas. His third contribution was that he broke the rules, hiring a group of foreigners as officials and sending Chinese officials abroad to study. Though this may sound commonplace today, at that time he was treading in hot water with those actions. Those that were selected to go abroad were actually seen as traitors to their country. Gong got a lot of flack for bringing in Westerners. However, if foreigners were not employed, China wouldn't have had any talents to manage customs and lead diplomatic missions. China would have never been able to engage with the West equally without sending its own diplomatic envoys. Although Yi Xin was not an emperor, he played a key role in promoting the country's modernization movement by using his limited but still influential power. Unfortunately, his struggle continued in the form of another 10-year ban from politics, and it was during this time the emperor took another beating from the Sino-Japanese War, which devastated the nation. As expected, the ruling powers summoned Prince Gong again to make things right again. Yet at that point, it was too late. The Qing Empire lost the war and had to give away Taiwan and lots of money as compensation. Four years later, Prince Gong died at the age of 66. Hypothetically speaking, if Prince Gong didn't die when he did, was there more he could have done? Could Gong have totally changed how the history of the late Qing dynasty turned out if he'd stepped into the emperor's seat he'd yearned for? Maybe not, but his clear and comprehensive understanding of China's status at the time and his view on the world made him probably the best chance for the declining empire for the times. For more on this exceptional figure, you can visit his former residence Prince Gong's Mansion, which is now one of Beijing's few top-rated tourist attractions. It's now open to the public as a museum and garden park. There await more stories for us to discover. That's it for this episode of Makers and Shakers of Chinese History. I'm Mark. Special thanks go to Sanlian Dongdu for contributing to the content of the show. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you tune in. Thanks for your company and see you next time.